Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. So, back in January, we began uh, our sermon series in Luke, and we've been going through it slowly, but taking everything in, and this morning, I now have the privilege of finishing off. So if you do have a Bible with you, please open it to Luke chapter 9. As I say, finishing this uh, series on seeing Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 9, verses 43, and we'll just be taking off from where we left last week. So to get that open, that'd be great. But before we do, songs are a very powerful thing which you probably already know yourself because we all love music, we're very musical people. In fact, in uh, neuroscience and psychology at the moment, there's really this huge movement to understand how music and songs affect the human brain. There's some very interesting developments. They found that people who have brain damage that affects verbal recognition are aided by hearing the same words sung. The same, way, the same thing that's been found with babies. Babies find it easier to pick up language when they're hearing it sung, which is probably why nursery rhymes are so effective. They're a very powerful thing, and scientists and psychologists don't quite understand it. One psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, talks about something that humans have, which he calls the hive switch, where when you're with a group of people all doing the same thing, the part of the brain that releases oxytocin, the hormone that makes you feel connected to one another, kind of activates. And he says this is most powerfully seen in humans when they all sing together. And so, unsurprisingly, throughout human history, songs have united people. If you think about football chants, you know, uh, sometimes they just take songs, random songs, and they suddenly become our team's song. And as soon as one person starts, everyone's joining in. It's not uncommon for relationships, married couples, to have kind of, you know, our song, this is our song. And uh, so they, they kind of have a powerful thing. Our, it's not a rule, but I would kind of put it to you that you can see what a society's God is by looking at the content of the top 10 songs in the charts. They're powerful things. They do powerful things to us. I heard one minister say, people tend to sing their heresy before they believe it. It's this concept that it gets so under the skin what we sing, and then gradually it starts to work out. So the question I really want to put to us this morning is, as God's people, what is our song? What unites us? What activates us? What is getting underneath our skin and telling us who we are and who we should be? Before we do that, let's read what Jesus has to say to us in the Gospel of Luke. So starting in verse 43, it says this. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it and were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to him, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the one, of you, the one who is least among you is the one who is greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. 
For whoever is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that as we unpack what you have spoken to us, that it would go deep into us, that it would affect us, that it would challenge us, that it would encourage us, that it would build us up. So Lord, fill me with your spirit as I preach your word and fill us with your spirit to hear it and take it in. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So in this recap, just to recap kind of what we've seen last week, we saw Jesus go up on the mountain and he was transfigured and the disciples saw it. And now they've come down. This is after they've, they've found out that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter has correctly identified Jesus. You are God's Messiah. Then he takes them up the mountain. They have this amazing experience. They've now come down. And so now the obvious question, of course, is which one of us is the greatest? It kind of begins by Jesus doing another son of man saying, now don't worry, I'm not going to make us turn there, but I hope by now we see whenever Jesus says son of man, he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. It's the passage we've looked at lots. There's a son of man taken into the throne room of God, the one who you don't expect to win against these powerful beasts. So Jesus again repeats a son of man saying, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And interestingly, it says they did not understand what this meant because it was hidden from them. It was concealed from them to understand what Jesus was saying. And it's funny because whenever we get to passages like this, where it kind of says something like it was concealed from them or it was revealed to them, it doesn't say who does the concealing, but the assumption tends to be God. In fact, if you read a a biblical grammar book, they call it a divine passive. When the person isn't named, it's God. I'm not actually sure that in this passage it's best to understand it as though God concealed what Jesus is saying to them. See, I think something is concealing what Jesus is saying, that his glory that they have seen is going to be manifested in being handed over to be killed. What is it that's concealing this from them? I think the answer is found in the next few verses. Their ambition. Their ambition is making, them, making it impossible to understand that this one who they just understood to be the Messiah is going to be handed over. And so they know how great Jesus is. And so by association, well, we must be pretty great too. And so they begin to ask, okay, we're all great. We know that, right? So which one of us is the greatest? You know, I realize that, you know, us three, we were called up the mountain, so we're, we're probably in the top three, but see, I have this special relationship with Jesus, so I'm probably the greatest, and John says, hang on a second, Peter, no, 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 I'm the disciple Jesus loved, I'm probably the greatest, and there's this bickering going on, there's this ambition, getting to the root of the issue, we're all great, so which one of us is the, issue, uh, is the greatest? Really what the disciples are giving into here is a very kind of worldly view of what greatness is. And it's not uncommon to find that. I'm currently listening to a a lecture series um, on ancient Greek history, which I'm finding really interesting. And the guy who's doing it, Professor Donald Kagan, makes this point that Western culture has two sources, Greece and Christianity. And it's like the West has this war in itself because the Christian ideal is kind of humility and the Greek ideal, well, to give some examples, the books of Homer, you might have heard of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now these are songs 
These are songs that they would sing. These are the songs where they find their identity. And these are the songs that bring them together. The first words in both the Iliad and the Odyssey are about the glory of man. Hear the tale of man's glory. And those tales are glories in conquest and war, in battle, in conquering those below. The glory of man is shown in them conquering. There's a story in uh, the Iliad of the king Odysseus. And there's this quite hilarious scene, really, where all the soldiers are done with the kings and the generals. Now, they're not allowed to talk in their presence, but they're getting so done with how they're being treated, one man stands up and, and Homer tells us this is the ugliest man in the world. And he says, you, you blimmin' kings, I'm paraphrasing, we're sick of you. We're sick of being treated like this. And Odysseus comes and he smashes him in the back with his scepter. And it says that welts immediately grew and he began to tear up in front of all the other soldiers. And surprisingly, what do then the rest of the soldiers say? They call out, of all the great things Odysseus has done, this is the greatest. The greatness is shown in keeping that distinction between I'm a king, I'm great, you don't talk in my presence, and we don't talk. And, and he has shown his greatness by silencing the one who would dare stand up. One finally before I bored you with nerdum, but uh, in the Greek Civil War, in the 5th century, there's this story where the great Athenian Empire comes to the tiny island of Milos. And the Athenians say, right, we're here to conquer you. You're ours now. And the Malians reply, well, well hang on a second. We were happy being neutral. Can't we just maintain how we were already? And Athens say, no, no, sorry, that, that's not going to work. The law of the gods, it's not, it's not our law, it's a law that transcends us, states that the great must conquer the weak. And so we're only doing our duty by conquering you. And obviously the, the Malians have a different interpretation of the law of the gods, but the point there is, no, we have a duty to take over because we're great and you're not. This is a kind of ambition that is not unique to Greece. It's, it's common really in all human society. This view that greatness is expressed in clear divisions of who's at the top and who's at the bottom, of the strong conquering those beneath them, of a lack of association. Now, the reality is there is this great gulf that exists. See, God is great. God is glorious and holy. And uh, we should have a, a slide of, of the gap that exists between God and us. And then underneath, we have not God. You could call it humanity. They are fallen. They are finite. They are weak. They are mortal. This is a gulf that exists between the two. And humans, we have this tendency, this temptation to turn the bottom category into many, many, many smaller boxes. And we're always below someone else, but above someone else. And we like to know where we are on the greatness ladder. And we turn it into endless subcategories. Now, of course, none of us are God. You know, none of us are uh, perfect and glorious and majestic, but I'm certainly better than you. And then once in a while in history, one person will say, no, 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 these boxes are too small for me. I don't fit into either of these boxes. I 
must create the middle category. See, I'm not God, fair enough, but I also don't belong to the not God box. So people like the pharaohs, Alexander the Great, Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, talked about the supermen who rise above the category of humanity. And they say, this box is too small for me. I transcend it. I am somewhere in between God and not God. Now, once you think that you belong in a box higher than everyone else, what follows is, I don't associate with you. Why would I come down to your level? I'm in my own category. I transcend you. I don't belong in the same category as you. This is all too often what the perception of greatness is, even if people aren't as prideful to say that they have their own box. Now, pride, prideful, that is really the key to this. For many cultures, there's no problem with pride. Pride is what gets the job done. If you want to be great, you've got to have some pride. And this is important to clarify. Pride isn't just an overinflated view of yourself. Pride isn't just saying, I am better than you. For pride to be pride, you also need to be putting other people down in your mind. It's not, we're here and I'm this. It's, you're here, I'm here. That's the root of pride. And pride is deceptive. Pride really finds a way to wriggle in to the human psyche. Pride is perhaps one of the sins that is least talked about and the Bible is so hot on. I myself over the years have had a real battle with pride and I'd, I'd like to share a story which I'm not particularly proud of. Um, pardon the pun. It kind of really fills me with shame to say it, but it's, it's a, an illustration, I think, of what pride does. Back when I was at um, Bible college, I had a very, very close friend, and neither of us had ever had any kind of involvement in teaching or preaching in church. And we were both at the same church, and our pastor asked us both to preach, me one week, him the next. Now, I kind of went into it with a very inflated view. I am God's gift to preaching. Maybe not that much, but at least it was subtle. And I preached. It was well received. The next week, my friend came to preach, and I couldn't go up to him afterwards and tell him, you did a good job. Because there was this sense that if I validate him, I'm taking away from my own worth, my own inflated view of myself. And I remember he finished, and I just walked off and I didn't say anything to encourage him. And it really, I mean, now it, it eats at me to think, but the, the problem there was my own self-inflated view of myself was only going to be sustained so long as I could put those around me down to keep myself up. That's really what pride looks like. Put others down so that I can stay up. There's no rest found in that kind of greatness. This kind of greatness, this pride, eats at you because you are constantly having to check those who you actually care about and love as still being worse than you. This is a greatness that doesn't satisfy, that eats. But it's a greatness that we all too often give into, a greatness rooted in pride. And so as we carry on the narrative, Jesus afar hears the 
the conversation. He hears the disciples talking, and he's thinking, oh, goodness sake. Now, at this point, there are many things Jesus could say. He could walk up there, and he could say, can I, can I just double-check I'm hearing you right? Are you seriously talking about which one of you is the greatest? Can I remind you, a few months ago, you were a fisherman, you were a zealot, and you were a tax collector. Literally, no one likes you, and yet you think that it's appropriate now to be asking which one of us is the greatest. None of you are great. That's the point. Instead, Jesus decides to do something a bit more subtle. He finds a child from the crowd that's been there with them. And in, in this time, in this culture, um, a, a child was kind of the lowest social class. There's a one rabbi that wrote, uh, writes, there is no greater waste of a man's time than to chat with a child. And so Jesus brings a child. <clears throat> Whoever welcomes this child as though he were me, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me, my father. Whoever would be greatest among you must be the least. Jesus is effectively saying, if you welcome this child indirectly by extension, you are welcoming the father. You are welcoming true greatness when you bring yourself down to the lowest. Jesus is calling attention to a different kind of greatness. Jesus' song is not the greatness of Homer. It's biblical greatness. Now, God has given us songs to sing. We have 150 songs from God, songs which he has given his people to unite them in the truth about what he wants from us. And really on this topic, I think there is no better place we can turn to. I would ask, let's turn there to Psalm 8. This song, Psalm 8, while you're turning, was sung regularly in the congregation of Israel. It was done on specific occasions as well as regularly in the life of Israel. They would sing this standing shoulder to shoulder. They would know this song. This is a song that unites them in the same way that a football chant unites a football club. And I'm just going to read it through. Jack read it for us so brilliantly earlier. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're first drawn to the majesty of God. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 draws us to a biblical view of greatness. It begins and ends with that statement, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. These are like bookends. It's saying that this is about the context of the majesty 
of God. But then as you unpack, okay, what, how are we going to see the majesty of God? What's it look like to see the greatness of God? Verse 2, you have set your glory in the heavens. You know, look up. Wow, God, you made this. And then verse 2, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Then verse 3, when I consider your heavens, again, look up. The works of your fingers. Verse 4, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Now, just something I'd like us to notice about verse 2 and 3 in the connection. Notice how you have set your glory in the heavens. Verse 2 is taking us to look up. And then as you go into verse 4, you have the same thing. Look up. As you carry on verse 2, through the praise of children and infants. As you carry on into verse 4, what is mankind? Verses 2 and 3 and 4 are mirrors of each other. They are saying the same thing. And so the message of them is the mankind in verse 4 is the babies and infants from verse 2. So to kind of draw that up, to explain it simply, what David is saying is, when I look up and see your creation and then look at the people you have chosen to rule it, it looks as though you have established babbling babies as your kings. You've established children as your stronghold. Wow. Now, the disciples' take on this kind of greatness is, when I see your greatness, I ask, how great must I be that you've set me in charge of it? I've, I've heard someone saying recently, how costly, no, if, if the cross bankrupt heaven to buy me back, how much worth must I have that I was worth Jesus dying on the cross? That's exactly the kind of thinking that the disciples are doing right now. This is so great, and I've been put in charge, ergo, I'm great. That's not the Psalm 8 message. The Psalm 8 message is that Jesus has called us because he is great to look up. Wow. Then as we look back at ourselves to say, what am I that you have called me? See, God isn't looking for people who are great in their own eyes. He is looking for babbling babies. He's looking for praise to come from the mouths of children and infants. And that, children and infants praising, God calls a stronghold against the enemy. It's not that God has cast aside any view of you know, strongholds or greatness or anything. He redefines it. Jesus is not saying to the disciples, yeah, yeah, you've understood greatness correctly, but I don't want you to pursue it. He's saying you have fundamentally missed what greatness is. This is what greatness is, that you would receive the child that the one who would be greatest among you is the least. Pursue that kind of greatness. The Psalm 8 view of greatness has a big God and small people. And that's exactly the design that God has made. God calls the small. He calls us to be small. And God is glorified in the small. God calls the small because he is able to. That's the kind of thing you can do when you're all powerful. He can go to Moses and say, I want you to speak to Pharaoh. 
And Moses can say, I'm not the best speaker. doesn't matter. He can go to Gideon and say, I want you to be the leader. And Gideon says, I'm hiding in a wine press. God says, it doesn't matter. God has sent his Messiah as a wiggling baby in a manger. God calls the small because God can. He does what he wants. God calls us to be small so that we can see him, so that we actually have enough room in our periphery to not focus on ourselves, to see God. And God is glorified in the small because when something big happens through something small, the only conclusion you can reach is God must have done that. When the Midianites flee, Gideon doesn't go, turns out I am pretty good. No, the conclusion is God has done this for us. God calls the small, God calls us to be small, and God is glorified in the small. That's the Psalm 8 greatness. It's not that God says, yeah, you're an underdog, but I'm going to make you big. He says, even while you are small, I'm going to crown you. That's what we see here. You have made them a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. And I just want to remind you, Psalm 8 is focusing, is, is reflecting on creation, on the order that God has established. And so the point there is, you are at your most truly human when you are small and God is big. You are living as the way that God intended you to be as a human when you can look up and say, you have set your glory in the heavens. What am I that you care for me? God has called us to be small people. Now, this is a a greatness that allows you to see the greatness of other people. Unlike the pride that I shared at the beginning, this kind of greatness allows you to step back and say, they are very good at that. They are better than that at me. It's a greatness that allows harmony among people. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no leadership, that there is no authority, that God says, we're all anarchists now. Both Psalm 8 and the New Testament talk about leadership qualifications. They talk about people ruling. Uh, You can turn to Romans to see that God says that governments are a good thing. You can turn to 1 Timothy 3 to see that God says that leaders in the church are a good thing. The difference is the qualifications for those leaders are surprising. God's view of greatness, biblical greatness, is weaved into what God calls leaders to be. So let's compare this kind of biblical greatness, these qualifications, with the kind of worldly greatness. What do we want in a leader? Someone who's strong. Someone who doesn't take any nonsense from anyone. The list could go on. What are the qualifications for a leader that God gives in his word? He says, he must be faithful. He must love his wife. He must have time for his kids. He must be respectable, temperate, self-controlled, not quarrelsome. This is the kind of leadership that God looks for. Loves his wife, loves his kids, has time for people, isn't an idiot. That's what biblical greatness looks like worked out in leadership. And it really captures the fundamental to the Christian faith is the virtue of servanthood. 
that in any other position, to be told you're going to be the servant is like, ah, pull the short straw. But in the Christian faith, what an honor that I would be called to be a servant. Something that really struck me is that in in schools today, it's so common to hear kids being told something along the lines of, you could be the next prime minister if you work hard enough. Naomi, sometime you could lead the AV team. As Christian parents, our duty is to say, you have the privilege of being a servant. Now, some of the servants from among us may be called to have leadership positions, but the greatest calling you can have is to serve, to mirror what Jesus did for us, to come down in humble service. It's not a crutch in the Christian faith to serve. It is the highest honor one can have. Greatness is shown in service, in humility. And so as the narrative finishes, the disciples have kind of seen this child come to them and, oh, yeah, what, what were we talking about? And John starts to twig and he says, we, um, so we saw someone uh, casting out demons in your name and we, we stopped them because they weren't with us. We shouldn't have done that, should we? Jesus says, no. Whoever's not against you is for you. See, what John is doing there is he's realizing, okay, yeah. Yeah, this greatness actually does affect us quite practically. It does actually call us to be different. It doesn't call us to say, no, no, no. We're the great ones. You do your thing. Leave this to us. This greatness works its way out. Now, I could talk about how we're called to live as small people, but I, I, wanna, I really want to uh, emphasize this. Jesus calls us to be great people, but he has redefined that greatness. So he is calling us to be great. So how do we do that? How do we look great? What is greatness? Greatness, according to Jesus, is the person beating their chest on their knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus condemns the person who knows that they're fine. And they come to church going, me and God are on great terms. Instead, he says, look at the person who knows that they don't belong there. That's who I want you to be. Greatness is the person who does everyone else's job and receives no thanks for it. Greatness is standing back and saying, actually, you're better at this than me. You take this one. This is the kind of greatness that Jesus calls us to. Greatness is not the possession of the one who pays attention to the great. Greatness is for those who act out. uh, It is not for those who act out the part. It is the gift of God to those who humbly serve the lowly. Martin Luther summed this up really nicely, I think, in a good kind of paradoxical phrase. He said, the Christian is a free man subject to none. The Christian is a slave, subject to all. It's both true. I'm not bound by anyone, and yet I'm bound to everyone. That's where greatness is shown. Not in me rising above my fellow person, but coming down to those who I would consider beneath me. Coming down to the lowly and saying, actually, 
we're on the same level. And that kind of, uh, that kind of view, that, that Lutheran kind of paradox that Luther described there is really at the capstone of the Christian faith. If we just go back to that God gap that we looked at earlier, the temptation is often to say, we're going to transcend and get to God. The gospel is that God saw us and came down. He didn't make a middle category. He came down to humanity. He came down to the lowly. This is the, the fact that has to permeate every area of the Christian life. God didn't wait for us to come to him. He came down to us. What a truth. It captures this paradoxical take on the Christian life. I'd like to read, this is a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a phenomenal prayer book, which I recommend everyone gets. This is the first prayer you find in it. I just don't think anyone else has captured it as well as this does. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. This is the Christian God. This is the living God. This is the kind of God that we have. The kind of God who from babbling babies establishes a stronghold. That from fishermen and tax collectors establishes his church. The God who from bread and wine, nothing spectacular, he comes to commune with his people. One of the things I love about the early church is, is other, other non-Christians just couldn't understand communion. What, they're just taking bread and wine. That's not a religious ceremony. Come to our temple, you'll see a religious ceremony. And so rumors started to uh, emerge. It can't be that simple. They're not just taking bread and wine. That's not religious. They must be eating people. And so one of the things you find in the first persecutions of Christians is people saying they are doing cannibalism. They're eating people at their meetings. The Christians are going, no, it's just bread and it's just wine. But we meet, we commune with God as we do this. It, it just fits the Christian God. It just fits his view of greatness. That the most victorious Christian is the one on their knees saying, Lord, I have failed you again and I need your mercy. That the crucifixion, this point of the height of shame that we looked at a few weeks ago, for us is the most glorious moment as Jesus establishes his kingdom. This is so practical. Whatever you do in your life, whether you work away or at home, 
You are called to live out this greatness in the way you work. Last night, I was in Sandhurst Military Academy having a dinner, and on my table mat, I saw the Sandhurst motto, serve to lead. The army have taken Jesus' teaching and gone, ah, that's practical for us. Whatever you do, this view of greatness is for you to apply in your life. So the challenge this morning is let's be great people. Our song is Psalm 8. We are a Psalm 8 people. Our song is a song of humility. Our song is a song that draws us to God and says, Jesus, how glorious you are. What am I that you care for me? And what a comfort that is, because it means that Jesus isn't expecting you to be all that. He isn't expecting you to have all your eggs in your basket. He knows you're a mess. He knows you're a babbling baby because he's called you to be a babbling baby because that's how he establishes his stronghold. That is our song. That is the Jesus that we come to. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be great. We want to be great people with a greatness that is defined by your word. With a greatness that draws our eyes upwards, not inwards. Lord, help us to see our own failings. Help us to see the crown that you have placed on our head. Help us to see the greatness of those around us. Help us to come down to the lowly, to not ascend ourselves higher than we should be but to have the privilege of following your example of coming down. Lord, we, are, we thank you that you call the small, that you call us to be small, and that you're glorified in the small. We are small. Lord, by your spirit, make us great. Amen.